Hey everybody, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes and I'm here with Terry Fakes. And we are going to be back to the Ezra Nehemiah Part 1, Part 2 book overviews this week. And I just wanted to say before we get going, uh, what a joy it was to get to talk to Ryan Smith last week about the Netflix show Cuties, the ministry that he started called Trust the Circle. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, right after this one, you're going to want to play that one. I think that's one of the more important conversations going on in our society right now. So that one was really a fun one to do, and I think a really important one. I'm excited today to get to Nehemiah for a couple of reasons. First of all, we did Ezra a couple of weeks ago and just talked about what a forgotten, in some ways, figure Ezra is, but what a reminder he is of when preparation, an anonymous figure meets the right moment, God made him very uh, suited for the situation he found himself in, and then God used him mightily in that story. So in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. They are almost like a part one, part two Mm -hmm. story of the restoration of the wall in Nehemiah, and then of the covenant in the book of Ezra after the exiles are returning from Babylon. So to begin, let's do a quick recap of where we were in Ezra with what's going on in the world, and that's going to transition nicely into the timeline for Nehemiah. Let me give you an abbreviated uh, history that kind of sets the context here. The key date for us is 586 BC. That's the date when the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar conquer what's left of the Jewish nation in Judah. They conquer Jerusalem. And what's even worse, they destroy the temple. They literally pull down the stones on the city wall. They basically intend to make it so that Jerusalem is never the capital of the Jewish nation again. And so they take almost all of the Jews into exile in Babylon. Well, from 586 until 539, so about 50 years or so, they're in exile there. But in 539, the Persians conquer the Babylonians. Well, the Persians have a completely different philosophy of how to rule people. They don't destroy your your city and basically export you or exile you to other areas. They're fine if you worship your own gods. They're fine if you live in your own area. As long as you pay your taxes and don't cause any trouble to the Persians, you can live your lives. And so the Persian king says, you Jews, and in fact, he did this for other peoples as well, but he said, you Jews can go back. In fact, you can rebuild your temple and worship your God if you want. So the very next year, in 538 BC, we see Zerubbabel lead the first group of Israelites back to Jerusalem. Well, it's a tough existence there because many of the neighboring peoples had moved in and taken their homes and farms, etc. But they hang on there for about 80 years. In 458 BC, we see Ezra, the scribe, the scholar. He returns and he restarts their worship, if you will. He restarts their covenant observance, and that's basically the book of Ezra. Well, a mere 13 years after Ezra, Nehemiah, in 445 BC, returns with the mission of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, and that is the subject of the book of Nehemiah. Yeah, just to recap and tie this into the rest of the biblical books, we've got the story of 
Zerubbabel in the first part of Ezra. Right. And we have the prophetic component in the book of Haggai. Right. And one thing that's really helpful as you move past the time of David and Solomon is the books are arranged essentially in terms of history and prophecy. You have the historical writings in First and Second Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah, and then you have the corresponding prophets who are bringing the word of the Lord to the people of Judah and the people of Israel. In the big prophets, you have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then you have the minor prophets interspersed right. throughout uh, these stories. And as we talked about last week, the book of Nehemiah is one of the last chronological books. In fact, it is the last historical book right. of the the Old Testament time period. Right. You have a little bit further on, you have some prophetic books, but not many. This is pretty much the end of the timeline. Yes, from what Nehemiah is going to do in our discussion today with rebuilding the wall until the time of Jesus, there's basically no biblical history. Obviously, there's a lot happening in that time period, but that is basically the end of the Old Testament historically until you get to the New Testament. So when we come to a book like Nehemiah, I always like to think about what makes this book different than any other book in the Bible. And I will say it's very similar to Ezra in style in some ways. It's mm -hmm. very similar in the problems that they're tackling. The central characters are very similar. Right. You get the same kind of writing in a lot of it where it's interspersed with different anecdotes and Nehemiah, especially with some prayers and things, but it's compiled by another writer. In fact, we don't know who wrote these two books, Right. but Nehemiah is unique in the sense that it's the first and probably the only, with maybe the exception of Daniel, autobiographical look at the life of a major biblical character. We see something similar to this in the Psalms of David, right. but uh, what Nehemiah does that is so unique is he almost keeps a diary in some of the entries in the book of Nehemiah, especially right at the beginning and right at the end. You see Nehemiah writing about his own life, and you get a really nice glimpse into what he's thinking, what he's doing, why he's doing what he's doing. And I think maybe outside of Jeremiah and mm -hmm. the life of David, Nehemiah is the, the easiest Old Testament character to connect with, is, mm -hmm. what, I, is what I would say. That's you really point. feel like you know Nehemiah when you get done with this book because you've been through his thought processes, you've been through his trials, you've been through his moments of triumph with him. And in some ways, you've seen him grow up into leadership by the time you finish this book. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think is, is unique about this book is Nehemiah's own background. So we talked last time briefly about how God uses certain characters, like Ezra, who's a scribe, or like Daniel, or like Joseph in the book of Genesis. Mm -hmm. He'll place them in a position of power in a pagan kingdom. And then, like a little time bomb, all of a sudden they do something magnificent for the people of God. Right. And Nehemiah is a great example of this because in the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, we find him in a very peculiar place for a Jew to be. He is in the kingdom of the most powerful man in the world at this time. Mm -hmm. And he's in a very unique role. So tell us a little bit about how the book begins. Well, as it opens, 
Artaxerxes I is the king of Persia, and Nehemiah is his cupbearer. And that name to us means, well, you're maybe the taster. You're the one that, you know, the food taster, the taste the wine and bring it to the king. But it's much more than that. In ancient times, the easiest way to depose a king was to poison him. And it happened a lot throughout history. And so the most trusted position the king had, maybe next to the general of his army or his bodyguard, was his cupbearer. So this is a position of huge trust. I mean, if you really wanted to get rid of Artaxerxes, the easiest thing to do would be to bribe Nehemiah mm-hmm. and say, look, I'm going to offer you all kinds of good stuff, and all you have to do is look the other way. I've, I've already got the plot ready, and I'll make sure that his wine is poisoned. So it's a position of huge trust. The second thing to know about this is it's not just the wine taster or the food taster. This is more like a... Oh, I guess if you're familiar with Downton Abbey, sort of like the head butler of the whole household or the chamberlain or the one who runs the household. It's a position of high administrative skills and high trust. Think about maybe in our system, if Artaxerxes is the president, honestly, Nehemiah is probably his chief of staff, Mm -hmm. kind of controls a lot of access. So his skills are very interesting. Yeah, this is a very unique role and one that tells us a lot about Nehemiah's character, his appeal to someone like Artaxerxes. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's surprising to find a Jew in this position because he might be an easy person to bribe because right. he's one of a conquered people group. Right. But it also goes to show how much the Jews had assimilated into the kingdoms and the realms and the cities that they had been transported to. You know, one of the questions that runs through Ezra and Nehemiah is, why don't all the Jews come back? Because they come in these waves. A lot of them don't come back. It's just a small group each time that decides Mm -hmm. to come back. Until you do, by the time of of the end of the book of Nehemiah, you have a, a pretty big group of people back in Jerusalem. But one of the reasons is they were enjoying exile too much. Right. They actually fit in pretty well. They liked it. They were treated pretty well. I mean, it, it ends up being a, a, a scenario kind of like when they go to Egypt. They right. multiply in Egypt, but and they're not treated very well there. But by the time they get in the wilderness, they say, you know, we had it pretty good back in Egypt. <laughs> and the life that they uh, the life that they experience back in Jerusalem, as we're going to see at the beginning of Nehemiah, is a pretty rough go. Very hard. Especially compared to the benefits that they were enjoying in some of these capital cities. But the the other thing is, remember when we talked about first and second kings, we told the story in in the reign of Hezekiah of being confronted with the Rabshakeh from the Assyrian Empire. Right. The Rabshakeh is a cupbearer. That is his title. That's what Rabshakeh right. means. And so we get a glimpse there. This is a different empire, obviously, but we get a glimpse there of the prestige that this role came with in the ancient world. There, he was more of the chief envoy of the Uh king. So he spoke with the king's authority. He was paving the way for what the king wanted done. In that sense, very similar to a modern political chief of staff. Right. And I think that's probably what Nehemiah was doing here for Artaxerxes. Another facet of the role is he was the uh, door guard for the king in the night. 
So mm-hmm. there were all kinds of ways that Nehemiah would have played a very trustworthy role to the king. And I think that that's something that plays a big role in the opening part of this book. So let's do a quick outline before we dive into the the stories here. We When the story opens, we have Nehemiah far away from Jerusalem. Chapter 1, we get his uh, report about the city of Jerusalem. He prays, sets the story in motion. In chapter 2, we get his journey and his inspection of the walls in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Really, the entire middle part of this book is work, opposition, and reform. Right. And if we were going to break that down, chapters 3 through 6 are work and opposition on the wall. In chapter 7, we get a list. We'll talk about these lists later. A quarter of the book of Nehemiah is people lists, but they are important, so persevere through those lists. Uh, Chapters 8 through 11 talk about the covenant, the feast. You get more lists of Mm -hmm. people coming back. Chapter 12, the dedication scene uh, of the priests, of the Levites, the reorganization of the Levites. And in chapter 13, we get a little bit of a standalone story later in Nehemiah's life about uh, reforms with priests and Levites. So the most famous part of this book is probably chapter one, Mm -hmm. and there's good reason for that. Nehemiah begins the story by being told by one of his brothers who comes from the city of Jerusalem that things are not going well. And it's clear that Nehemiah really has no idea what's going on in Jerusalem, but he deeply cares about his own people. So when the report comes... He tears his clothes, he weeps, he brings the matter before God. And with the background that we've just talked about, it's a little bit interesting the way he reacts to this news. It'd be easy to see him as being a little bit cold and disconnected. He's got a good gig going. But that's not how he reacts at all. No, it's amazing. He sat down and wept and mourned for days. I fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And it then records his prayer, his prayer of, and surprisingly, a prayer of confession that says, uh, you know, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have not kept the commandments that you gave to your servant, Moses. And it is surprising to be so commercially successful and leading such a, an important position, yet his heart is clearly tuned to God, even mm-hmm. in this position. And that's, I think it's that along with his skills that allow God to use him. Had he simply been skilled, I don't know if, if he would have cared enough to be used by God. But mm-hmm. he has those two things, very much like a Daniel, very much like Ezra. He has the skills and the heart for God. Yeah, it's clear that he has not become detached from his faith. Right. He remembers what God has done for his people. He remembers what the point of being an Israelite is. <laughs> right. He understands the mission of Israel to bless the nations. And he reacts, as you said, with a combination of concern and passion for what God is calling him to do and the presence of mind to use his position for the glory of God. And this is a great modern lesson for us in when we think about vocation. So the grounding of vocation is not in what we can do or accomplish or get from our jobs. Mm -hmm. The grounding of our vocation is our identity as believers, that we are Christians first, and whatever we've trained to be in life, second. And one of the things that Nehemiah shows us is 
that's not a shot at the dignity of our profession. Right. It's a reorienting of the rootedness we have in our professions as Christians. That everything that we've been trained to do in some way or another is something that God can utilize for his kingdom. And that doesn't mean God can utilize for the local church that we attend. Right. It means the way that God is going to carry out his mission in the world. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That Mm -hmm. kind of vision of the world can be impacted by the jobs that we have, by the people that we serve, by the ways that we carry out the cultural mandate of, of, of reigning over and bringing the earth under the dominion of God. Mm-hmm. So Nehemiah immediately recognizes this identity, both as a Jew and as someone who cares deeply about the city of Jerusalem mm-hmm. and as someone who is, as he says in the last verse of chapter 1, a very uniquely gifted uh, vocation. I am the cupbearer to the king. So what we see in chapters 2 and 3 is Nehemiah utilizing the things that God has given him. And this is no small thing because one of the little hinge points in the story is whether or not his request is going to be granted and whether or not he's going to be dispatched of for making this request. Right. I mean, the Persian kings were, it's hard to think now how vast their empire was and how absolutely universally powerful they were. They literally had the power of life and death over everyone around them. It was a death penalty to enter the king's presence without specifically being asked to do so. And so he is nervous. I I love his prayer. The uh, very end of chapter 1 is, he said basically, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of me, your servant. And I love this phrase, and give me favor in the sight of this man. Mm-hmm. I have prayed that prayer many times, modeling Nehemiah. Lord, give me favor in the sight of this authority figure. You know, you pave the way. And so he goes in and he takes a great risk. In fact, let me just make a connection for you here because some of you are saying, boy, this sounds really similar to me. Artaxerxes is the king right now. His father was king before him and his name was Xerxes. And in the time of Xerxes is the story of Esther. And you realize that Esther, the queen, you know, gets her courage together to go ask Xerxes to right a wrong. And she realizes she's taking her life in her hands. The same thing is happening here with Xerxes' son. Mm -hmm. Nehemiah realizes he may banish me. He may execute me for for this. And yet he does it. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, You realize in what high esteem he is held. It says, the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Artaxerxes here goes above and beyond to honor his request. And Nehemiah is sure to remind us this is not just because of Nehemiah. Mm -hmm. This is because the hand of God was upon Nehemiah and upon Artaxerxes. Right. And there's, there's a great theme through these two books, a linguistic theme, the hand of God appears, I think, 12 to 15 times in Ezra mm-hmm. and Nehemiah, always speaking about God doing something through the decisions of, of other people. Mm-hmm. A lot of times this is through the decisions of pagan people. That You, you think of the proverb, the, the, the heart of the king is in the hand of God, and he turns it whichever way he wants. Mm-hmm. This is a narrative of that proverb come to life. Right. 
in a lot of ways, what this teaches us is even though it seems like the world is controlled by completely pagan, non-religious powers. I mean, if you just look around at the world today, uh-huh. Christians have an unprecedented level of influence, especially in America. Mm-hmm. And it still feels like the major decisions are being made by people who do not care about God. Right. They do not care about his kingdom. And yet we read these stories and we're reminded, even in a place as as dark and as irreligious in terms of the Jewish faith and the Christian faith, as Assyria and Persia and right. Babylon, God is the one who is still directing the turns of history. And this little theme, if you read this and maybe you underline every time you see this theme, it will remind you that even though there is there are there is a symbol of earthly power, and uh, we saw in the story of of Nebuchadnezzar how God can quickly uh, right. bring Himself into the foreground. Uh-huh. Even in the moments where it seems like the earthly powers are rebelling against God, God is the one who is still directing the steps of the kingdoms of the earth. And uh, so Nehemiah sees here, the hand of the Lord is with him. And he goes above and beyond. He doesn't just let Nehemiah return to Jerusalem. He gives him a charter to do whatever he needs to do. It gives him safe passage across the king's land. It gives him timber out of the king's personal forest. It gives him funds for the rebuilding. I mean, this is an um, amazing answer to Nehemiah's prayers. Yes, he gets uh, everything he could have asked for and more. Uh, So I infer from that just how highly esteemed he was. And, you know, part of that is just how good he was at his job. It's very much reminiscent of Daniel during the Babylonian time that he was well-respected by Nebuchadnezzar and he was equally well-respected by the Persian king Cyrus in his old age, because he was so good at what he did. And then God was able to use his faithfulness. Those two things together made a powerful combination. But Nehemiah is perfectly positioned to do this. Had he just gone back, a guy with a dream, to build the wall, he wouldn't have had the resources to do it. Mm -hmm. But I love your point there that God's providence, God's sovereignty, is often exercised through ungodly people. None of these Persian kings were Christians. None of them were Jews. None of them really even seriously acknowledged that God was real. And yet, he exercises his providence through them. Mm -hmm. So the central part of the book then, from chapter 3 all the way through basically to chapter 12, is about rebuilding the wall of Israel. And it may not occur to us immediately why this is an important thing to do. So Zerubbabel goes back, rebuilds the temple. It's obvious why that's important. Right. But why do we have a book written about rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem? It's a great question. Uh, There are a lot of things I could say here, but I'll just focus on two. One is very practical, and that is they have enemies. You're going to be introduced to uh, some Samaritans, some Arabs. I mean, there are key leaders here who don't want the Jews back as any kind of power in the land. So it has a very practical term of security. They basically need to defend their city. And so building the wall gives them security, and it's the only way they can ever reestablish themselves. But I think in a more important way, it also gives them identity. 
there's something to be said for this is our temple, the place where our God dwells. This is our city, and this wall around us may be a physical barrier, but it's very emblematic of God's presence and protection of his people. Remember, just 70 years, uh, you know, a little bit before that, but basically they've been taken into exile. They should have ceased to exist in history. And yet God had told them before they went, I will bring you back. It seems to me that the wall as a mechanism for security is important, but also as a symbol of God's faithfulness to what he said and their identity as God's people. Yeah, that's a really good point that I didn't get reading this story. It makes a lot of sense to view it through that lens when you see how they respond to the wall being completed. Mm -hmm. So the wall's completed in record time. It doesn't take them very long. And Nehemiah even says it was because God was with them as they were building. And they do all kinds of cool uh, things to build this wall. I think one of the most famous ones is they are being attacked by outsiders who do not want the city of Jerusalem fortified. Right. Uh, and they work and they guard. They have a shovel in one hand and a sword in the other. They mm-hmm. blow a trumpet and everybody rushes to defend each other when when that happens. And in fact, the sword and the trowel was one of the little publications that Charles Spurgeon huh, wrote. I did not know And that. it comes from this story. You uh-huh. have the sword to defend, you have the trowel to repair. Right. And uh, you're working and you're guarding against uh, enemies. But when they get done, they treat it as a major religious event. So one of the things that you see in the second half of the book of Nehemiah is they re-ratify, and this is where the books of Ezra and Nehemiah converge. They re-ratify the covenant with God. They celebrate what he's done. They they reenact the Feast of Booths, which is a Uh remembrance of when they were sojourners, uh-huh. and uh, God's deliverance and provision for them. You know, one of the verses I like is in chapter 6, verse 15, is exactly what you're talking about. This is when they finished it. He said, so the wall was finished in 52 days, a major management achievement. And, and listen to this. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. It becomes a religious event, not just a construction event. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one of the major takeaways of this book, I think, is that crossover between something like building the wall and restoring the city of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. If you read through the prophets, you cannot escape that God has a special love for the city of Jerusalem. Right. It's the city of David. It is where the temple was built. It is where his presence dwells. It is supposed to be a city for the world to come and see the glory of God. And when they finish restoring that city, both the temple and the wall, it is a moment where God has made good on another one of his promises. And the people respond to him by praising by rededicating the covenant uh-huh. by coming together as a as a nation and Nehemiah becomes the governor of the city of Jerusalem right so as we approach the end of the book we see him doing some organizing we'll come back to a portion of this later but 
we see him doing some organizing, some reforming. I mean, he's doing basic municipal leadership right. in, in terms of rebuilding this city. And then in the final chapter, we see Nehemiah in chapter 13 reorganizing the Levites. And this is a problem that we talked about at the end of the book of Ezra, where he's essentially calling the Levites to be faithful to the promises and to the commandments that God had given them, particularly concerning intermarriage with foreign peoples. Right. And as you read this, if, if you have questions, I would go back to the end of our Ezra podcast where mm-hmm. we have an extended discussion about why does God care about intermarriage, mm-hmm. especially with the things that that evokes today when we think about right. intermarriage. We talked about the spiritual importance of what they're doing in that podcast. And, you know, that's a good point. Let me just reiterate here. God's prohibition of intermarriage for them wasn't a racial or ethnic issue. I mean, we just got through talking this weekend at our church about how you have a couple of non-Israelites in the genealogy of Jesus. It was never racial or ethnic. It was always a spiritual prohibition. Mm-hmm. You know, the point I want to end on here with Nehemiah is to talk about leadership in Nehemiah. And typically, I am hesitant to talk about leadership from the Bible. My my thought is kind of, if you want to talk about leadership, just talk about leadership. You don't need to baptize it to (laughs) to talk about leadership. And, uh, you know, there are great leadership lessons throughout the Bible, but the point of Jesus' ministry isn't to teach you to be a better CEO. I mean, it just isn't. Right. And, you know, the life of David and Paul. Uh-huh. And I read a, I read a book um, a couple of years ago about Paul's method of leadership and discipleship. And I think there's a lot to be gleaned from that. But typically I shy away from, uh-huh. you know, why Paul was, you know, the COO of the, of the, of the Gentile <laughs> mission. It's, uh-huh. I, yeah. It just, there are moments like that where I feel like you get away from the real purpose of the text. Right. You're trying to... Basically, I mean, I appreciate the intent. I don't think the intent is bad in this, but basically you're saying, I want to use the Bible as a secular tool, and that's not what it was ever intended to be. Uh, I'd rather fit my secular thinking into the Bible rather than vice versa. Right, and that's not to say it doesn't have implications. Right, Uh, But just when you're doing, when you're exegeting a text, when you're trying to get to the core understanding of what a text means, sometimes that takes you pretty far afield. But, and here's the but, I think Nehemiah is one of the places in the Bible where the point is godly leadership and what it means to lead out of godly character, what it means to administrate in such a way that is honoring and glorifying to God. And so there have been a lot of times in, in the past where either I've been asked or have organized a conference or mm-hmm. speaking engagements to talk to leaders or to talk to business leaders even. And Nehemiah is always my go-to for those events because I think there is a lot to glean from the way that Nehemiah leads. Right. And like I said, one of the unique features of the book of Nehemiah is you get such a good look at his personal character, his thoughts, the way that he makes decisions. And uh, I'll never forget, I think what really turned me on to the book of Nehemiah in the first place is a book by Gene Getz. Yes. And he has a Men of Character series, mm-hmm. and the Nehemiah book is just phenomenal. It is, a, it is a good one. Now, I think it's been since 
junior high or high school since I read this book, so don't call me on every page of this book. There could be wacky things in there. I don't remember. But I, but what I remember, the takeaway I remember is godly character manifests itself in the way that you lead. And, and there's not a, a clean break between you are a godly man in the morning when you read your right. Bible, and then you go to work and you do what every other person does at work, and you return shareholder value and all of that. I mean, there, there is a continuity in the way that a godly man can approach what we would think of as secular work. Right. And uh, just studying the way that he goes about uh, bringing his faith out into his leadership is really worth spending some time on. And there's three passages that I just want to throw out uh, that demonstrate this concept. I think... We've already covered the early lesson in Nehemiah's life of using your gifts mm-hmm. and using your position for the kingdom of God, bringing your prayers before God, asking for favor, even when it seems like it has nothing to do with a matter of faith, even when it's something that has to do with your vocation. Right. But the three that I'll mention is, is the first one is in chapter 3. Like I said, the, a quarter of the book of Nehemiah is lists. And that can be a little bit tedious to get through, but there's a little gem buried in some in, in a couple of these lists, and I just want to point out one of them. As you open the chapter of this chapter of Nehemiah, he's beginning to assign work for rebuilding the wall. Mm-hmm. And so at the beginning of chapter three, you have uh, Eliashib, the high priest, rising up with his brothers, rebuilding one of the gates. And then it goes through and it just tells you who's doing what work where. Mm-hmm. And it all seems kind of superfluous. But don't, don't stop reading because in verse 23, we get an interesting little detail. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Maaseiah, the son of Ananiah repaired beside his own house. Mm-hmm. And we start to get a little theme here that Nehemiah has very shrewdly, I think very brilliantly, assigned people to work on the portion of the wall that is in their own front yard. Right. And you ask yourself, well, why is that significant? Because they have the personal interest <laughs> exactly in that right. part of the wall uh-huh. being well-built, and defending them from enemies. Right. I mean, this is just a shrewd tactic on Nehemiah's part. He assigns the rebuilding out of personal interest. Mm-hmm. He allows people to do the work that they care the most about right. that is right in front of their house. Right. And I just think that is a great leadership tactic, is to understand human nature to the extent that start the rebuilding in your own front yard. Mm-hmm. This is a great encouragement for all of us. It's easy to care about fixing problems when you have skin in the game. Right. And Nehemiah uses that to his advantage. He He gets the right people in the right places at the right time working on the right problems. And I just think in the middle of a of kind of a boring list, Uh you get this great little glimpse into Nehemiah's leadership. The second thing I'll point out is Nehemiah faces a lot of opposition in the work. And there are two people, Sambalah and Tobiah, that uh, come and heckle him and try to trap him. And they bait him at one point. They're going to assassinate him probably. Uh But Nehemiah handles the opposition really well. 
And uh, he goes through several waves of this, but in chapter 6, we don't find out until later that they're setting a trap for him. But whether because God warns him or because he's just a shrewd leader, in chapter three or chapter six, verse three, Nehemiah responds in a way that is just really wise. <laughs> he so they send messengers and and he sends messengers back and says, "I am doing a great work and I cannot come down." So they say, "We got to meet. We got to talk about this." Uh-huh. And we have a crisis. Yeah. yeah, we have a crisis here. <laughs> and Nehemiah responds, "I am doing a great work and I cannot come down." And I just think to myself. How much better would our society be if people would say, I am too busy to get caught up in this meaningless crisis? Right. I mean, I'm thinking of social media here, yes, most that's of the all. the first thing in all of our minds <clears throat> at the moment. Yes. But especially when it comes to just the things that sap our energy, the things that take away from our core focus. Uh, the things that are urgent but not important, if you're thinking of the right. productivity quadrants. Uh-huh. Uh, Nehemiah just nails what it means to stay on mission. Yes. I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. I cannot be distracted by yes. this right now. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to see you? Right. <laughs> and it, and it, it just <laughs> takes you a little bit by surprise that he's uh-huh. that blunt. But it's exactly the kind of reminder that we need. And, and one of the things that's convicting about it is Nehemiah is so convinced that he is doing what God has called him to do uh-huh. that he refuses to be distracted. Right. And uh, I just wonder how many of us take what God is calling us to do that seriously. That if he has called us to do something great, he will take care of what else is going on in the world. He's called us to do this, so we should stay in front of that project until it's done. I agree. It's interesting as it goes on. After he says that, they listen to this. You could just translate this into social media today. It says, well... They respond, it is reported among all the nations, and Geshem, the Arab king, also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you're trying to uh, overthrow the king. So if you don't, we're going to say bad things about you. His response is, no such thing as you say have been done. You are inventing these things in your own mind. <laughs> That's all he's yeah. got to say. He's, he, he he's not going to be drawn into this. Fifth century BC uh, PR master. <laughs> exactly. He's not. He's not taken off task. He's not taking the bait. And even even before that, it says Sanballat for the fifth time sends his. Yeah. I mean, they, they are heckling him yeah. to stop building this wall. But he's convinced that he's doing what God has called him to do, and he is not going to be distracted by other stuff. Right. I just think that is a a great lesson. It really is to see in Nehemiah. He is he is able to preserve a single minded focus on what God's called him to do. Mm-hmm. The third thing is another list, another part where if you're reading this in a Bible reading plan, or yeah. if you're just sitting down to read it, these these chapters can really wear on you. Yes. But in chapter twelve, one of the things I've always really loved about Nehemiah is he is a man of the people. He understands that in order to do something great, it takes a lot of people to do it. Like we Mm -hmm. said in the beginning, he understands human nature to the extent that he gives people a motive to work hard. He lets them work in front of their own houses. Later on, we see a little bit of the insight that Nehemiah has as a leader 
in assigning people according to what they are gifted to do. Right. This is, I would say, an endemic problem in the church is we feel this tension of everybody feels gifted for about three jobs in the church. And it kind of <laughs> depends on what your role is. I mean, uh-huh. either everybody can sing or everybody can teach or everybody can lead. Yeah. And it's like somehow nobody is gifted at stacking chairs, you know, and nobody is, is <laughs> right. gifted at facilities work and nobody uh-huh. is gifted at sending emails out. You know, it's always the glamorous jobs. But what Nehemiah understands is when you see talent in someone, and you create an opportunity for them to utilize it, you will see God work in ways that you will not believe. And that's what he does with the guards. That's what he does with the municipal work that he's doing. And then Uh at the end of this chapter, verses 44 through 47, he takes a note out of David's book. He organizes the singers and the musicians and the priests all according to David's taxonomy. We talked about this in First right. and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, or we did First and Second Chronicles. And we, he takes a note out of David's book to say, right. "Let's divide these people up according to their gifts." Mm-hmm. Okay, David divides them by clans as well, by families, uh-huh. and but Nehemiah basically looks and says, "Okay, we got people that are good at singing. Let's let them sing. We got people that are good at gatekeeping." Let's put them on security detail. And uh, he, he goes back to and says, From the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and they were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And uh, Nehemiah arranges for a daily portion for right. these people. He equips them to do what they're good at. Right. It says that he gives a daily portion for the singers and the gatekeepers. And uh, they set apart that which was for the Levites. He's going back to the command of God that the Levites should not be working. They should be serving. Right. Anyway, he restores this order based on the one hand on what God has called them to do and on the other on what God has gifted them to do. Right. And Nehemiah understands this fundamental rule of leadership and of management, which is if God calls you to do something, he's going to supply the resources. And it typically goes along with what he's promised. So Nehemiah doesn't reinvent the wheel here. He goes back to what God has promised for organizing the worship of the temple, and he institutes it. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, it turns out there's people to sing, there's people to guard, there's portion, there's enough in the community to run the play that God has commanded them to run, which is provide for the needs of the Levites. And so you just see this sense in Nehemiah, not only of obeying God's commands, but also the shrewdness to deal with people in a way that maximizes people's gifts and right. maximizes what they're able to do together. I mean, Nehemiah is just a great community leader. I agree. And, you know, one other thing I would add out of this is the, the other thing that, that strikes me is how many people are in this list. It's easy in the church. I've been here. I've done this. I'm guilty of this as well. Is you get a handful of dedicated people they're gifted, and you work them to death. Mm-hmm. And it's it's easier to rely on the people that are the most dedicated, but it's more successful to get everybody in at some level of commitment. And I feel like he was a just an expert at getting so many people in at whatever level of commitment they were prepared for. Mm-hmm. I, I'm impressed with that. Well, the book of Nehemiah ends on kind of an interesting note, and I, I want to know what you think about this. So he <clears throat> recaps all the things that he's done. He ends up making a trip back 
to the Persian capital. And we get this end of his diary here uh, where he's facing opposition again. And he closes with this in chapter 13. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O God, for my good. What do you make of this last line? You know, there's a theme that runs through this. You'll see him saying this, for example, about Sanballat and Tobiah. He says, remember what they did to harm us. (laughs) He's like, look, I'm not suggesting a punishment, but it could be as severe as you want. Mm -hmm. In other words, remember what they have done. And there is a part of him, a couple of times he says this, remember me, oh God. He says this about other people too, remember them Mm -hmm. for what they did. But that's a really interesting question. Remember me, oh God, for what I have done. Uh I'm going to read it in the most favorable light and say it in this way. Uh, And that is, Lord, all I've ever wanted to do, I'm paraphrasing here, but I'm reading this very favorably. All I've ever wanted to do was to fulfill what you've given me to do. And, oh, Lord, I hope I'll hear a well done, my good and faithful servant when Mm -hmm. I get there. Now, if I wanted to give the least favorable light, I would say that he really believed in a merit-based kind of process with God. So uh, I can see both sides of this, and it's honestly... I want to think the best of him, but it's it's a he's a complicated character. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, it's a tough line. I mean, I think yeah. I think that is the I think those are probably the two options here. I, I tend to read it as a reminder that leadership and following your calling from the mm-hmm. Lord are hard to do. Yeah. This is tough work, uh-huh. and I think there's a little bit of a deceptive lie that if you're just if you just find what God has called and equipped you to do, it will be easy and it will be enjoyable and it will all work out and you'll never work a day in your life. You know, the whole, if you find something you love doing. Uh-huh. And I think this is just a great reminder that we read this story and we think, man, Nehemiah was so committed. He gave everything to the Lord. He faced opposition, but he was courageous through it and he triumphed right. over it. I think this is one of those little reminders that, you know what, though, in the moment, Nehemiah didn't know how it was going to turn out. Right. And he didn't know that maybe these people were going to kill him. Yeah, and it wasn't pleasant. It, it was wasn't not easy. pleasant. It was not easy. And I almost read this as a, almost as kind of an exasperated, Yes. I am doing my best, Lord. Yeah. Remember that I was doing my best. <laughs> Just, yeah. Remember this. It's funny you say that. I had lunch today with a one a headmaster of a local school, Christian mm-hmm. school. It was not Crossings Christian School, but and we were joking a little bit. Every headmaster of any private school will tell you that it is a great job if only the parents weren't <laughs> coming in to see you with all their issues. We if were only joking. they saw the world the way you did. It's right. Yeah. I, I, I'm joking about that a little bit, but I do understand that job. Uh, very well. And I think to myself sometimes when you look at, for example, in this case, this Christian school is just doing great work for God through all these people. And the person leading it is not always having fun. Mm -hmm. And I I should probably say this exact prayer for them. Remember, oh God, her good work or remember, oh God, his good work. Mm -hmm. And I, I think you may be onto something there is they weren't always of the right frame of mind. They didn't always enjoy it, but Lord, I'm, I'm doing my best here. 
Right. And I, I think that example is especially pertinent because they don't get to see the fruit. That's right. Those kids graduate. You did your best. A lot of them don't look like they're headed in the right direction, and God works through their life. And you never get to see the families that they have, the careers they have, the Sunday school class they teach, the people that they serve. You just trust God with the results. And that's exactly what Nehemiah has to do. He works hard. He prays. He commits himself to the Lord. He works as hard as he can for what God has set before him. And in the end, he trusts that God is going to be the one that takes care of the fruit. And it is faith. I can think of uh, a high school student at a Christian school who I won't mention his name, but he's on this podcast with me, whose (laughs) sole goal in high school was to literally overthrow the administration. And if you had asked them then, would he be on this podcast? Would uh, he uh, be a pastor? They would have wondered. Mm-hmm. And you're right. So often they don't see the fruit. And Nehemiah, of course, could not have seen the long view. And yet they put up with all the burdens that God gives them, trusting that he is working for good. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.